Section 17 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 5, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary, Chapter 3, Part 3. The proceedings of the Privy Councillors at Copt Hall cannot be better narrated than in the words of the Lord Chancellor himself, who, in a very tragic tone, thus relates the scene, which, contrasted with the sad and tearful events of those times of terror, positively ends with a tinge of comedy. I, the Lord Chancellor, delivered His Majesty's letters to the Lady Mary, who received them on her knees, saying that she would kiss the letter because the King had signed it, and not for the matter contained therein, which was merely the doings of the Council. Reading it to herself, she said these words in our hearing, Ah, good Mr. Cecil took much pains here. When they began to exhort her, on the business they came on, she prayed them to be brief. For, said she, I am ill at ease in health, and I shall, mayhap, make you a short answer, having written my mind, to his majesty, with mine own hand. Nevertheless, they proceeded in their exhortation, and offered to show her the names of all the council, who had resolved she should not have the private mass in her house. She cared not, she said, for the rehearsal of their names, for she knew they were all of one mind therein. And, added she, rather than use any other service than that ordained during the life of my father, I will lay my head on the block. But, she continued, I am unworthy to suffer death in so good a cause. And though his majesty, good sweet king, have more knowledge than any other of his years, yet it is not possible for him, at present, to be a judge of all things. For instance, if ships were to be sent to sea, I am sure you would not think him able to decide what should be done, and much less can he, at his age, judge in questions of divinity. Howbeit, if my chaplains do say no mass, I can hear none, no more can my poor servants. As to my priests, they know what they have to do. If they refuse to say mass for fear of imprisonment, they may act therein as they will, but none of your service shall be said in any house of mine, and if any be said in it, I will not tarry in it an hour. They then told her how the king had commanded her comptroller, Mr. Robert Rochester, to enforce his council's orders, and how ill and inefficiently he and his colleagues had done the errand, and of their flat disobedience when commanded to return with a second message. As might be expected, this information gave the Princess Mary extreme satisfaction. Friendless and oppressed she might be, but it was evident she was still absolute mistress in her own domicile, and her servants preferred gainsaying a king and his council to the task of contradicting her under her own roof. With true woman's wit, she rejoined. It was not the wisest of all councils that sent her own servants to control her in her own house, for of all persons she was least likely to obey those who had been always used to obey her implicitly. As for their punishment, the lords must use them as they thought fit. But if they refused to do your message, added she, they were the honester men, I wis. Then the Chancellor opened at length, regarding the message of Charles V in her behalf to the Privy Council, to which she replied, 
I have the emperor's letter in his own handwriting, testifying that an actual promise was made by the council that the mass should be permitted me, nor can you marvel that I credit the emperor's writing more than your words, and, though you esteem the emperor so little, yet should ye show me more favor than ye do, even for my father's sake, who made the most of ye what ye be now, almost out of nothing. This observation must have been peculiarly cutting to those in her presence, since Henry the Eighth had, really, raised them from the lowest rank of English gentry, and they were remarkable for no talent, excepting the art of skilful compliance, with every persecuting whim of the sovereign that happened to be reigning, whether directed against Protestants or Catholics. As for the emperor, continued the princess, were he dead, I would do just as I do now, notwithstanding, to be plain with you, his ambassador shall know how I am used. After this, resumes Lord Chancellor Rich, she was told that the king had appointed a person to supply the place of her impracticable comptroller, Rochester, who was sent to prison for refusing to carry the messages of the council. I shall appoint mine own officers, quoth she, for my years are sufficient for the purpose, and if ye leave your new comptroller within my gates, out of them I go forthwith, for we twain will not abide in the same house. And, added she, I am sickly, yet will I not die willingly, but if I chance to die, I will protest openly that ye of the council be the cause of my death. And, having said this, she on her knees delivered a ring, as a token to the king, saying, that she would die his true subject and sister, and obey him in all things, except matters of religion, but this, she added, will never be told his majesty. And having said this, she departed into her bedchamber. Then the Lord Chancellor called the chaplains of her household before him, and commanded and threatened them, if they said aught but the service contained in the common prayer book. The chaplains, after some take, promised to obey. When departing, the Lord Chancellor and his company went down into the courtyard and waited a few minutes, while search was made of one of the chaplains, who had got out of the way of the exhortation. Just then, the princess, who perhaps was willing to divert their attention, opened a little window close by them, and though they offered to return to the house to hear what she had to say, she would needs, says my lord chancellor, speak out of the window. I pray you, quoth she, ask the lords of the council that my comptroller, Rochester, may shortly return, for since his departing, I take the accounts myself, and lo, have I learned how many loaves of bread be made of a bushel of wheat. I wis, my father and mother never brought me up to brewing and baking, and to be plain with you, I am a-weary of mine office. If my lords will send mine officer home again, they shall do me a pleasure. Otherwise, if they will send him to prison, beshrew me, if he go not to it merrily and with a good will. And I pray God to send you well in your souls, and in your bodies too, for some of you have but weak ones. It cannot excite surprise that the deputation waited not to hear any more of this address, to which the princess certainly gave a comic turn, that few will expect from her. 
thus she remained victor in the whole discussion for it is not mentioned that the absentee chaplain was found therefore when the unwelcome visitors departed this chaplain doubtless came out of his hiding-place and performed the forbidden service as usual in the chapel these events took place just before the arrest and condemnation of the duke of somerset to the scaffold he had previously lost every shadow of power among other accusations he was charged with having proclaimed to the people that the dudley faction had sown strife between the king and the princess mary in the succeeding april the united attacks of the smallpox and measles left a blight on the constitution of the young king which too truly prognosticated his early death projects in consequence began to be formed for excluding mary from the throne the long fits of illness which afflicted her gave probability to the reports the dudley faction raised representing her according to the italian of polino as a poor miserable invalid fit for nothing but to be shut up in her palace nevertheless many of the principal lords of the kingdom were anxious for their daughters to serve her and be her companions to whom she replied do not marvel that i am obliged to decline receiving them for my fortunes are such that i could neither benefit their prospects in life or give them pleasure and though you kindly offer them i could not receive services without rewarding them the visits of the princess mary to her brother in the last year of his life had become few and far between and when they took place were conducted according to the solemnest etiquette one of these visits took place in june fifteen fifty two she previously spent some days in london at her palace of st john's clerkenwell from whence she rode with a goodly company of ladies and gentlemen june eleventh to the tower wharf there she took her barge and was rowed to greenwich palace her interview with the king was to take leave of him previously to his progress to guildford the mad ambition of john dudley who had lately created himself duke of northumberland destined the english crown for his youngest son lord guildford dudley by means of marriage with one of the ladies of the blood royal descended from the protestant branch of suffolk at first lady margaret clifford the grandchild of mary tudor the sister of henry the eighth by descent from her youngest daughter was the mate chosen for northumberland's favorite boy subsequently the faction became more daring and more desperate as the king's illness took the form of consumption and guilford dudley was matched three degrees nearer the throne with the fair and learned lady jane grey eldest daughter of francis duchess of suffolk who was heiress to the sister of henry the eighth and charles brandon duke of suffolk a few months before this union the princess mary received lady jane grey as her guest at newhall during the progress the king made alluded to above in july fifteen fifty two an anecdote connected with this visit proves that the religious rites of catholicism were notwithstanding all opposition still celebrated in mary's domestic chapel for lady wharton passing through the chapel at newhall in company with lady jane grey at a time when service was not proceeding curtsied to the host which was in its usual place on the altar lady jane asked if the lady mary was present in the chapel lady wharton said no why then do you curtsy asked lady jane grey i curtsy to him that made me replied lady wharton nay said lady jane grey but did not the baker make him 
Lady Wharton reported this dialogue to the Princess Mary, who never after loved Lady Jane as she had done before. The princess had previously presented Lady Jane Grey with a rich dress, and her observations on the sinfulness of wearing it, mentioning Mary, as one who left God's word, probably found their way to the princess's ear, as well as into the narrative that recorded them. It is possible that these incidents caused Lady Jane Grey to be nominated as the successor of Edward the Sixth, a choice so replete with calamity to her. The ensuing September was spent by the Princess Mary at Hunsdon, and to this place, on the 8th of that month, the eloquent and zealous Ridley, then Bishop of London, went from his seat of Haddam close by, to pay her a pastoral visit. He was courteously entertained by Sir Thomas Wharton and the other officers of the princess, till about eleven o'clock, when she came forth into her presence chamber. He saluted her grace, and said he was come to pay his duty to her. She received the bishop courteously, and conversed with him right pleasantly for a quarter of an hour. She told him, she remembered him when he was chaplain to her father, that she recollected a sermon he preached before the king, on occasion of the marriage of my lady Clinton, to Sir Anthony Brown. The princess then invited him to dinner. After dinner, he told her he came to do his duty by her as her diocesan, and to preach before her next Sunday. She blushed when she answered, for emotion, it has been before noticed, always brought a lively color to her cheeks, and bade him make the answer to that himself. Upon which he became more urgent, and she answered, that the parish church would be open to him, if he had a mind to preach in it, but that neither she nor any of her household would be present. He said, he hoped she would not refuse to hear God's word. She replied, she did not know what they called God's word now, but she was sure it was not the same as in her father's time. God's word, replied Ridley, was the same at all times, but hath been better understood and practiced in some ages than in other. She answered, he durst not have avowed his present faith in her father's lifetime, and asked, if he were of the council. He said he was not. When he retired, she said, she thanked him for coming to see her, but not at all for his intention of preaching before her. Before he left Hunsdon, Sir Thomas Wharton, steward of the household, according to the custom of the times, took him to the cellar or to the buttery hatch, and presented him with the usual stirrup cup. After Ridley had taken it, he said, He had done amiss to drink under a roof where God's word was rejected, for he ought to have shaken the dust off his feet, for a testimony against the house, and departed instantly. With these words he went his way, leaving all that heard him in the utmost consternation at his manner. Halen, in his version of the story, affirms that, they declared their hair stood on end at his denunciations. The sincerity of both these opponents was unquestionable. Mary, pure in life and unswerving in principle, was ready to lay her head on the block, to testify her love for the faith in which she had been reared. Ridley was ardent in piety, and as poor, though Bishop of London, as the Apostles, to whom he compared himself, so bountiful was he in charitable distribution. In a milder age, such persons would have respected each other's virtues, and tolerated difference of belief. But the mainspring of all the horrors of that dismal era was the fact, that if the word toleration was in use, it only served, on both sides, 
to nominate a crime nor was it till after as much catholic blood had been shed by elizabeth as would have fairly extinguished the hideous fires of the marian persecution that one glorious light of the church of england discovered the great christian truth that odious comparisons bitter sarcasms and other fruits of polemic argument excite combative anger rather than feelings of christian benevolence or veneration it was holy george herbert the mild beams of whose tolerant faith were only diffused over one rural parish who thus addressed his countrymen just preparing after a short breathing time to rush into another religious civil war be calm in arguing for fierceness makes error a crime and truth discourtesy why should i blame another man's mistakes more than his sickness or his poverty in love i may but anger is not love nor reason neither therefore gently move as the young king's health declined the homage offered to the princess mary increased and when she paid one of her state visits to him at westminster on the occasion of the new year of fifteen fifty three her cortege was crowded with the principal nobility she retired however to her favorite seat of newhall where in may she received false intelligence that the king was better and addressed to him in consequence the following letter of congratulation the princess mary to edward the sixth my duty most humbly presented to your majesty it may please the same to be advertised that as hearing of your highness's late room and cough was as much grief as ever was any worldly thing even so that the hope which i have conceived since i received your majesty's last token by my servant hath not been a little to my comfort praying almighty god according to my most bounden duty to give your majesty perfect health and strength with long continuance in prosperity to reign beseeching your highness to pardon my bold and rude writing and if in the same i do trouble your majesty at this present which i hope i do not that my humble duty and nature or natural feeling which enforceth me thereunto may excuse my default thus most humbly taking my leave of your majesty i do and shall daily pray for the prosperous preservation of your royal estate as of all others i am most bound from beaulieu or newhall the sixteenth of may scribbled with a rude hand no yearly date your majesty's most humble sister mary this was the last communication that passed between the princess mary and her dying brother his real situation was sedulously concealed from both his sisters who in distrust of the prevalent court faction kept at some distance from the metropolis at the end of may a splendid bridal festival was held at durham house strand while the king was extremely ill his accomplished kinswoman lady jane gray was married to lord guilford dudley and her sister lady catherine gray to the heir of the earl of pembroke king edward expired at greenwich palace little more than a month afterwards he disinherited by an illegal will not only the sister whose religion he hated but his protestant sister elizabeth in order to bestow the crown on lady jane gray it is a point that will admit strong historical controversy whether in this transaction edward was northumberland's dupe or his victim the dominant faction by means of doubling the guards round the royal apartments contrived to keep edward's death a secret from the public for two days for the purpose of inveigling the rightful heiress of the crown into their power accordingly the council wrote mary a deceitful letter saying 
that her brother who was very ill prayed her to come to him as he earnestly desired the comfort of her presence and likewise wished her to see all well ordered about him mary who had watched over his infancy appears to have been melted by this appeal she returned a tender message expressive of her pleasure that he should have thought she could be of any comfort to him she set out immediately from hunsdon and got as far as hodesden when a mysterious messenger met her sent some historians say by the earl of arundel some by sir nicholas throckmorton she learned however her sisterly affection had been imposed on that the king was dead and that she was destined to imprisonment in the tower the private memorials of the throckmorton family describe how this was effected when king edward expired sir nicholas throckmorton who was present at his death came in great grief to throckmorton house in the city where his three brothers were assembled to whom he revealed the king's death and the intended proclamation of northumberland's daughter-in-law as queen the brothers agreeing in a strong detestation of the house of dudley resolved that timely notice should be given to the princess mary and therefore called into consultation her goldsmith who undertook to carry the important message he set out accordingly to meet her and was undoubtedly the man who intercepted her at hodesden and revealed the real state of affairs this information threw mary into the greatest perplexity she asked her goldsmith how he knew for a certainty the king was dead he answered sir nicholas knew it verily this authority was exceedingly mistrusted by mary for as sir nicholas throckmorton had assumed the phraseology of the most violent calvinists at the court of edward the sixth she could not believe that his intentions were friendly to her cause she dreaded that a trap was laid to seduce her into an overt act of treason by proclaiming herself the sovereign of england while her brother was living after musing some time she said to her informant the goldsmith if robert had been at greenwich i would have hazarded all things and gauged my life on the leap she meant the elder brother of sir nicholas sir robert throckmorton for whom she had always the greatest esteem she would not however despise the warning though she did not fully confide in it but diverged from the london road towards suffolk with all her train these events must have occurred on the afternoon of the seventh of july the fugitive heiress of england bent her flight in the direction of cambridgeshire as the nearest way to her seat of kenninghall through bury st edmunds as the soft shades of a july night fell round her hasty course over those desolate plains which are intersected by the eastern road once so familiar to the pilgrims bound to the lady shrine of walsingham and since as much traversed by the frequenters of newmarket the ladies and cavaliers of her faithful retinue began to discuss the recent death of the young king they were all catholics of the ancient ritual and of course viewed the changes of the eventful times wholly according to their prejudices they recalled with awe that the only heir male of the line of henry the eighth had expired on the very anniversary of the lawless execution of sir thomas more it was in vain that king henry had overthrown all existing impediments and set at naught the lives of thousands in his wilfulness since his frantic desire of continuing his name and sceptre by heirs male was now as much blighted as if the divorce of catherine of aragon and the awful bloodshed which stained his latter years had never taken place wearied and worn the whole party arrived at the gate of sawston hall in the neighbourhood of cambridge 
and craved the hospitality of Mr. Huddleston, its owner. That gentleman, like his relative, who watched the royal oak at Boscobel so well, was a zealous Roman Catholic. He knew, though she did not, how inimical his neighbors of the town of Cambridge were to the cause of the lineal heiress. Huddleston was, nevertheless, too true a gentleman to refuse shelter to the way-wearied princess and her harassed retinue, though there can be little doubt but that he must have foreseen the perilous consequences which threatened himself and his lares and penates. Mary lodged that night under the hospitable roof which was never more to shelter a human being. She was astir with her ladies and retinue before sunrise, but commenced not her arduous journey till she had offered up her devotions according to the rites of her religion. Very early in the morning, Mary set out on her journey to Kenning Hall. When she and her party gained the rise, called the Gogmagog Hills, she drew her bridal rein, and paused to look back at Sawston Hall. At that moment it burst into flames, for a party from Cambridge, adverse to her cause, had heard of her arrival, and had mustered early in the morning to attack the house that harbored her. If they had not amused themselves with plundering and burning Sawston Hall, they might have seized Mary, so close were they on her traces. She gazed on the flaming pile undauntedly. Let it blaze, she said. I will build Huddleston a better. She kept her word. The present Sawston Hall was built by her order and at her expense. Mary was received loyally at Bury St. Edmunds, yet she made no further stay there than for the noon refreshment. The news of the death of Edward the Sixth had not yet reached that town, and Mary's retinue accounted for their hurried journey by asserting that one of the household at Hunston had died suddenly, suspected of the plague. Therefore the fear of communicating that disease prevented them from tarrying in populous neighborhoods, and caused their retreat into the depths of the country. The same night Mary crossed the river, which separates Suffolk from its sister county and arrived safely at her seat of Kenninghall in Norfolk. There was little rest for her, either in mind or body. By that time the news of the death of the king, her brother, was generally known, and it was necessary for her to take immediate steps for the assertion of her title to the throne. She instantly penned a temperate remonstrance to the privy council, mentioning her brother's death with feeling, and further declaring that she was aware of their inimical projects, but she concluded with the offer of amnesty and favor, if they relinquished the same, and proclaimed her in London as their sovereign. This dispatch was dated Kenninghall, July ninth. The council proclaimed Lady Jane Grey queen, on the 10th of the same month. Their reply to Mary was peculiarly aggravating. They branded her in gross terms with illegitimacy, and advised her to submit to her sovereign lady, Queen Jane. Mary immediately took prompt measures for maintaining her right, and certainly displayed, in the course she pursued, an admirable union of courage and prudence. She had neither money, soldiers, nor advisers. Sir Thomas Wharton, the steward of her household and her ladies, were her only assistance in the first bold step she took. Had she been surrounded by the experienced veterans in arms and counsel that rallied round her sister Elizabeth at Tilbury, more sagacious measures could scarcely have been adopted, and had Elizabeth been the heroine of the enterprise, instead of Mary, it would have been lauded to the skies as one of the grandest efforts of female courage and ability the world had ever known. And so it was, whether it be praised or not. 
sir henry jerningham and sir henry bedingfeld brought their norfolk tenantry to her aid before she left kenninghall which she did on the representation that the country was too open and the house not strong enough to stand a siege she resolved to fix her headquarters within an easy ride of the eastern coast whence she could on emergency embark for the opposite shores of holland and seek the protection of her kinsman the emperor charles v with this intention she left kenninghall july eleventh mounted on horseback and attended by her faithful knights and ladies she never drew bridle till she reached the town of framlingham which is deep embosomed in the suffolk woodlands and situated about twenty miles from kenninghall the treble circle of moats which girdle the hillside town and fortress of framlingham were then full and efficient and the whole defences in complete repair mary arrived there after nightfall at the head of a little cavalry force destined to form the nucleus of a mighty army the picturesque train of knights in warlike harness and their men-at-arms guarding equestrian maids of honour with the heiress of the english crown at their head wended their way by torchlight up the woodland eminence on which the saxon town of framlingham is built thus they passed the beautiful church where the bones of the noble poet surrey have since found rest and ascended the mighty causeway over two deep moats and paused at length beneath the embattled gateway surmounted then as now by the arms of howard directly mary stood within the magnificent area formed by the circling towers of framlingham castle she felt herself a sovereign she immediately defied her enemies by displaying her standard over the gate tower and assumed the title of queen regnant of england and ireland End of section 17